All right, so what I'd, what I'd like to do tonight is to, to take you through the, the early part of the, of the English Bible. So we won't, we won't go all the way back to when God gave the word. But I particularly want you to understand the history of the English Bible because it, it helps change how we, how we look at our Bibles and how much you know, we, we value what we have so much of. You know, sometimes when you have an abundance of something, you just kind of take it for granted. And that's what often happens. Uh, I'm not saying we're guilty, but I'm just saying in general, that, that happens when you have an abundance of something. And, and we have an abundance of the Word of God. And we've got apps and websites and um, how many hard copies. If we took a poll, I wonder how many hard copies of the Bible you have in your home. Uh, I have quite a few. I don't even know how many, but uh, you know, probably close to 20 is what I'm guessing. So when you have such an abundance, it's just really easy to take it for granted. But it wasn't always so. So I want us to just better understand some of this. will be a review for you, some of you that have, that have heard this before. Um, others, it may be new. And then uh, just we'll go through it and see how much we can get done in the time, time that we have. And then we'll pick it up next time. Like I said, next time we'll, we'll take it all the way into the modern translations. And I'll help you understand some about um, form translation versus a dynamic translation and talk about some of the modern versions and then lead that into the, the Legacy Standard Bible. So really the English Bible, um, there were some proto-English, some very early English translations, but as far as any kind of wide-scale English translation, everything ties back to John Wycliffe. So he produced the first handwritten English language Bible in the 18. 30s. I mean, sorry, 1380s. Um, you imagine writing the whole Bible by hand? Okay, that's that's what he did in a day and age where you just didn't have pick up another big pen, and you don't have all this paper that's uh, readily accessible. I mean, obviously he had paper to to hand write it, but it's again, it's it's early. He's doing it. He's an Oxford professor and theologian. He was well known throughout Europe for his opposition to the teaching of the organized church, which he believed to be contrary to the Bible. And with the help of his followers called the Lollards, his and his assistant uh, Purvey and many other faithful scribes, Wycliffe produced dozens of English language manuscript copies of the scriptures. Right? Let's just pause a minute. He produced multiple copies. How do you do that? He didn't have a Xerox. He didn't have a scanner. Didn't have a printer. Gutenberg had not invented his printing press yet. So guess what? This is manual. This is a scribe. And he's producing dozens of these. Right? That's, that's impressive. None of us have even written a Bible once in my hand, I don't think. <laughs> and he's, he's producing. And he's so driven that the people need God's word. That he's, that he's producing copies of the Word of God in English. Right? Obviously, this isn't wide scale because when you're doing it by hand, it's very slow work to do. And they were translated into the Latin Vulgate. We'll talk a little bit more why that's important later, but the Latin Vulgate has some problems with it. Um, but it was the only text that he had available to him. Guess what? If you were in church... We were to transport ourselves back to a church building of that time. You would not. We would not be speaking English. Or you, if I was teaching, I would be teaching in Latin. 
And would you understand Latin? You would not. Because Latin was only the language for scholars. It was the religious uh, elites, the priests, the scholars, um, and you know anybody who went to the university studied in Latin. And hence, that's even why many times in the legal and even the medical realm today, there's much Latin used. It's all a hangover from that time. So, um, but the common people would not speak Latin. So you would go to church service, you would hear the priest um, speak Latin, the mass, it's, the, it's only the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church at that time, and you would, you would just hear it. How edifying, how edifying would that be? Yeah, not, not very edifying at all. I know I sat through a Polish service that I understood very little. Right? And Alex probably sat through an English service at some point, understanding little. True? No? Okay. Because you learned English earlier. Okay, that's Okay. Hence why. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm just trying to bring that, bring that into our kind of modern setting that, to help you understand what, what they were going through. Why? Why Wycliffe was, was so uh, passionate? Why did he spend so much of his life and life energy into getting the Bible into, into the, the common language? And that, that's why. Um, you notice that last sentence there, the Pope was so infuriated by his teachings. He, he was martyred, but he was so infuriated by his teachings and his translation of the Bible into English that 44 years later, after Wycliffe had died, he ordered the bones to be dug up, Right? crushed and then scattered into the river so he's he's really he's really many people call him the, the morning star of the reformation i mean the reformation is not going to hit until the, the 1500s but he's kind of the morning star he's he's like the kind of a spark that's that's fueling many things yes he did i think he, he should, for sure that pope missed the sermon on the mount yeah John Huss, um, and, and we are being selective here. I'm not covering every, all of them, but John Huss, one of Wycliffe's followers who actively promoted Wycliffe's ideas that people should be permitted to read the Bible in their own language, and they should oppose the tyranny of the church that threatened anyone possessing a non-Latin Bible with execution. Did you know that? If you possessed a non-Latin version of the Bible, that was grounds for you to be killed. And that, that would stay that way for, for many hundred of years, hundreds of years. He was burned at the stake in 1415. Wycliffe's manuscript Bibles used as kindling for the fire. And his last, the last words of John Huss were that in, in a hundred years, God will raise up a man whose, whose calls for reform cannot be suppressed. That was somewhat prophetic. What happened? 1415, what happens about a hundred years later? In 1517, Martin Luther. Martin Luther and the, you know, his, the, just his stand for truth as God brings it out. So in, in the providence of God, this turned out to be very, a very prophetic prayer that was answered uh, almost exactly 100 years later. All right, Fox's Book of Martyrs records that in the same year, 1517, that is uh, when Martin Luther um, really began the Reformation. Seven people were burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for the crime of teaching their children to say the Lord's Prayer in English rather than Latin. Again, shows you how 
times have changed. Right? John Gutenberg, he invented the printing press in the 1450s, printed the first book ever to be printed, which was a Latin language Bible printed in Mans, Germany. And the Bibles, uh, unlike today, where our Bibles are pretty much just text, the Bibles that time had a lot of, a lot of illustration. Um, and, and we'll look at some of those uh, a little bit later. History has it that although he, he invented the printing press, he was kind of swindled out of the business um, and he was left in poverty. But, but nonetheless, God used this, this invention of the printing press. This, this particular printing press had movable type, whereas, whereas before it would take uh, a really long time to set uh, the uh, type. Um, I'm not exactly sure even how they, how they did that. But Gutenberg's uh, press had movable type. So while still slow by modern standards, it allowed them to mass produce um, uh, books. Thomas Lineker, uh, he was an Oxford professor and personal physician to King Henry VIII, the seventh and eighth. Um, he decided to learn Greek in the 1490s. And after reading the Gospels in Greek, and comparing it to the Latin Vulgate, he wrote in his diary, either this, that is the original Greek, is not the gospel, or we are not Christians. The Latin had become so corrupt that it no longer even preserved the message of the gospel. Yet the church still threatened to kill anyone who read the scripture in any language other than Latin, though Latin was not an original language of the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? With the Latin Vulgate, it become so corrupt. Um, whether that's intentional or whether it was just because of, of a copy of a copy of a copy, uh, I do not know. I do not, not not an expert on the Latin Vulgate. But when people were comparing Greek versions to the Latin Vulgate, they began to see it was very different. And some of it is change of meanings of words. Um, but it is, it is very um, different. And it even goes into helps understand why uh, Martin Luther misunderstood what justification was. Uh, when he, when he, he began to, to read the Greek himself and then began to understand that the word justification and what that meant. In Latin Vulgate, it means one thing. It means um, um, more of a, not a declaration, a legal declaration like what it means in Greek. So... Um, so that becomes very important later. Then we have John Collett. Some of these are names that uh, are not, not household names when you think of the Reformation. He was also an Oxford professor and the son of mayor of London. In 1496, he started reading the New Testament in Greek and translating it into English for his students at Oxford and later for the public at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. The people were so hungry to hear the word of God in a language they could understand that within six months, there were 20,000 people packed in the church and at least that many outside trying to get in. Can you imagine that? 20,000 people inside and that many more people outside. Now, how many people do you think that are in that building on a given Sunday today? I don't know today, but... In 2003, on an average Sunday morning, there were about 200 people in a building that could hold 20,000. And, and the guy that wrote, noted that said most of those are tourists. So that tells you something about the spiritual climate 
in England. But there was a time when people were starving to hear the word of God. And, and as it notes there, uh, fortunately for Collett, he was, a, he was a powerful man with friends in high places, so he avoided execution for what he did. Then we hit Erasmus. Now, Erasmus is important because Erasmus is a, is a, is a, is a brilliant scholar who um, collected many Greek manuscripts and, and brought them together. Um, in, in 1516, with the help of printer John Phoben, he published a Greek-Latin parallel New Testament. So a parallel testament is on one side of the page, one column you have Latin, and the other column you have Greek. So you have the Latin Vulgate, you have the Greek. And that, that, now, now that begins to help you see the difference because they're right there together. Um, there's many in foreign countries, there are many Bibles that are, that are put that way. You have like English in one column and Spanish in the other, or English and Polish. So it, it helps those who are, who are trying to learn that language and trying to understand that language. So that, that was very important. And Latin, the, the, uh, sorry, the Latin part was not part of the, the corrupt Vulgate, but his own fresh rendering of the text from the more accurate and readable Greek. And correct myself there, it was not part of the corrupt Vulgate which he had managed to collate from a half dozen partial Old Testament Greek uh, New Testament manuscripts that he had acquired. So this milestone was the first non-Latin Vulgate text of the scripture to be produced in a millennium. That's a thousand years. And the first ever to come off of a printing press. No sympathy for this illegal activity was to be found from Rome with this curious exception of the famous 1522 Compulsion Polygot Bible even as the words of Pope Leo's declaration that the fable of Christ was quite profitable to him continued through the years to infuriate the people of God. In other words, he was making money off the misunderstandings uh, of the Latin Vulgate, essentially what it's saying. And people wanted to know the word of God, and yet he was uh, kind of holding things back by not allowing the Bible into the language of the common people. So Erasmus is important because his work lays the foundation really for Martin Luther, and Martin Luther then helps lay the foundation for what we see for um, the English translation here in William Tyndale. So William Tyndale was captain of the army of reformers. We don't think about reformers as having an army, but at times they did. Um, it's quite, a, quite an interesting history between Scotland and England and all that goes on there. We won't dive into that. But he was also their spiritual leader. Tyndale holds distinction as being the first man to ever print the New Testament in the English language. So Tyndale was a true scholar and a genius, so fluent in eight languages that it was said that one would think any one of them to be his native tongue. Absolutely gifted, brilliant man, eight languages, fluent in them all. And he's uh, frequently referred to as the architect of the English language. So even more than William Shakespeare and so many of the phrases Tyndale coined are still in our language today that we still use. It's, it's pretty amazing uh, that what God did. So keep in mind that Martin Luther had a, had a small head start on what William Tyndale was doing. So what, what um, Martin Luther did for the Germans, uh, William Tyndale did for the, for the English. Um, and just talking about Martin Luther just a moment because of his work is important to even our English Bible. He was exiled in the nine months following the Diet of Worms. The Diet of Worms was supposed to lead to Martin Luther's execution. Uh, his friends rescued him. They, they kidnapped him. 
and they hid him away and and really nobody knew only those that kidnapped him knew where he was at uh, he had a very wealthy um, a man who ruled a region who took care of him took care of all of his needs he was locked away not allowed to leave and during that time he translated the new testament into german for the first time from the 1516 greek latin new testament of erasmus and he published it in september of 1522 luther also published a german pentateuch that is the first five books of the bible in 1523 and another edition of the German New Testament in 1529. You know, that, think about all those years. You know, some people don't read the, their whole Bible in six years. He's translating the whole Bible in that amount of time. So that's, there's, a, there's a lot of work that goes in that. And in the 1930s, he would go on to publish the entire Bible in German. Uh, so he, he very much influenced and uh, inspired William Tyndale, which is why I mentioned him here, because he doesn't directly tie into the English Bible, but, he, but God did use him to encourage Tyndale. So um, here's a kind of a, a page from a, a Tyndale New Testament. Tyndale used Erasmus's Greek and Latin text, the sources for his English translation, in addition to Luther's German Bible and Latin Vulgate. Remember, Tyndale was fluent in eight languages, German being one of those. So he could look at Martin Luther's translation and, and it would be helpful to him in making a, a decision on how to translate something into English. So Tyndale, remember it's English, any translation outside of Latin is outlawed. So word got around what Tyndale was doing and Tyndale had to flee England. Um, so, and there were many inquisitors. Inquisitors is not a good thing in this context. These are like, uh, we would call them uh, secret, like secret police or private detectives. Uh, they, were, they were trying to find Tyndale's whereabouts. And um, it's interesting, uh, Steve Lawson uh, at the uh, Anna Grace Church just a few weeks ago did a whole lesson on the preservation of the English text, but he mainly focused on Tyndale. So, Go listen to that sermon. It's, it, he goes into a lot of detail about Tyndale's life and how God used him and, and even how he was uh, betrayed. Uh, but it took him many, it took him 10 years to find Tyndale. And in those 10 years, he was a very busy man. So God foiled the plans to, to try to find Tyndale. And in 1525 and 1526, the Tyndale New Testament became the first printed edition of Scripture in the English language. And... Um, now, they're, they're, they're small, so they can be <clears throat> hidden. Soon we're going to see Bibles are big, but, but these are quite small that you could hide in a, in a jacket. You could hide it in a grain, a sack of grain or something like that. So they were imported um, in, into England, and the English inquisitors were finding these, and that they were the, actually one of the biggest buyers of Tyndale's New Testament. They would take them and burn them, but then all that money would flow back, and Tyndale would just print more and send them back. Right? So it's kind of interesting how all that worked. So be, because the, most of those editions were bought by inquisitors or end up in the hands of, of kind of the British, um, well, really the, the archbishop, the, those in, in England, most of those all were destroyed. So today there are only two known copies. Now, the British Museum says there's three known copies, but most of the sources I've, I've read online say there's only two known copies of that. Uh, one is in the British Museum. And, I, and several years ago, I'm, I'm pretty certain, I couldn't find evidence for it online, but I was pretty certain the other one 
but one of those is at the Master Seminary Library. So it's, you know, that's, it, they're very, very rare. Uh, in fact, the uh, British Library, in, two, in 1994, the British Library paid a million pounds for their copy. Right? So a pound is worth a lot, well, I think it still is worth a lot more than a dollar, although it's falling. But um, so a million, a million pounds for one of the few that are left. So this this is um, from the, the the picture here is is um, from the British Museum. You can go online and and read about it. So and I'll put this. I'll try to put the uh, the PowerPoint uh, on up with the audio for this. So you can go back and review it if you'd like. And most of the uh, most of the details here come from a website called thegreatsite.com. Thegreatsite.com. They are um, a Bible antiquities. Uh, collector and dealer and you can they buy and they sell so if you wanted you've had a lot of money and you wanted to buy uh, a very ancient bible they're a good source to do that now going on in the new testament um so the more the more the king and the bishop resisted its distribution the more fascinated the public at large became it's like human nature right it's the forbidden book is what it became and that's the book that everybody wanted was the forbidden book. Um, now the church, that is the you know the hierarchy of the church, declared it contained thousands of errors, as they torched hundreds of New Testaments confiscated by the clergy. Well, in fact, they burned them because they could find no errors at all. So one risked death by being caught, uh, risked death by burning if caught with a mere possession of Tyndale's forbidden books. So subsequent printings of the New Testament in the 1530s were often elaborately illustrated. Here you see a picture of what we're talking about. So this is the opening page of the Gospel of St. Matthew. And you see there's a, quite a, a nice illustration going. That's, that's how some of the, many of the original Bibles were. This is a, a copy from a facsimile. It's called a facsimile. So a facsimile is not the original. What they do as a facsimile is they have an original and they, they scan or, or high quality photograph and then they'll reprint it so this is a not an original but it looks like the original so this is a 1536 Tyndale New Testament facsimile of the Gospel of Matthew so uh, what's significant about 1536 is that was the year of Tyndale's ex execution um, so that was the last that he he produced now, you could go online to that website, told you, greatsite.com, so you could purchase this facsimile for $195 if you wanted to, to see that yourself. Um, Tyndale New Testament, I have, a, I have a large quote here that really sets the pace for Tyndale. He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Right, so and that actually came true. Um, having God's word available to the public in the language of the common man, English would have meant disaster for the church, and hence they fought it tooth and nail. Right, no longer could they control access to the scriptures. If people were able to read the Bible in their own tongue, the church's income and power would crumble. They cannot possibly continue to get away with selling indulgences, that is, the forgiveness of sins, or selling the release of loved ones from a church-manufactured purgatory. And the contradictions between what God's Word said and what the priest taught would open the public's eyes and the truth would set them free from the grip of fear and the institutional church held. 
Uh, salvation through faith, not works or donations, would be understood. And there's many doctrines taught by the Roman Catholic Church that uh, don't line up with Scripture. And hence the book uh, was so foughtly, uh, so fiercely fought against. Um, it's interesting that... So if you kept it in a language that nobody could understand, in a language, the storytelling and the traditions and the rules and they're ever changing the Latin Vulgate story that nobody can understand, and they can just do what they want. They can do what they want. If nobody understands, they can do what they want. So all the service, like the Mass would be in Latin, and then they would probably have some kind of teaching in, in the common man's language to, to kind of like, so to quote, explain. So they, they, would, they would teach them that the way of salvation is, is you know, through these works and the selling of indulgences. How would, how would people know? How would you know? Right? You only have the priest to tell you. You don't have the Bible in your language. Right. They weren't going to teach you. So there's just there's so that's why it was such an explosive issue. The the Catholic Church um, understood that, and that's why they fought it so fiercely. Um, it's interesting that that Tyndale. Remember, he was on the on the run. So in in 1525, just to back up a little bit, in 1525 he shows up on Luther's doorstep, um, and by year's end had translated the New Testament into English. So again, just to show you that how the reformers interacted. Sometimes we don't think about that, but, but they did interact and encourage one another. Uh, again, this is a uh, 1551 uh, Tyndale New Testament. Um, it is an original, or it's a picture of an original that's there. So because the church fought Tyndale so severely, any copies prior to 1570 that are still in existence are very rare and extremely valuable. So Tyndale's uh, flight was an inspiration to freedom-loving Englishmen who drew courage from him. And the 11 years that he was hunted, uh, books and Bibles uh, flowed into England in, in bales of cotton, stacks of flour. And as, as I mentioned earlier, um, Tyndale's biggest customer were the king's men who would buy up every copy available to them and burn them. Uh, but then he'd use that money to, 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 to print more. Uh, he was betrayed by an Englishman who, had, um, who Tyndale misunderstood uh, uh, Dr. Lawson points out that many of Tyndale's closest associates warned Tyndale about this particular person. They didn't think that he was legitimate. Tyndale um, didn't, did not listen to them and, and was betrayed. Uh, one day when they went out for a walk, the gentleman said, hey, let's go for a walk. And um, so they went out for a walk and the gentleman betrayed him. Tyndale's last words were, oh, Lord, open Open the king of England's eyes. So it's interesting that both his, one of his initial early prayers and his last prayer uh, were both answered. So you can purchase this New Testament. Um, this original of the 1551 is printed in May 6, 1551 for a mere $80,000. It's value at $125,000. So, yeah, just, just, just a, yeah, just yeah, half a house to us or something like that. Um, his prayer, Tyndale's prayer, would be answered in just, just three years. He died in 1536. In 1539, along came, comes King Henry VIII, who allowed the Bible and even funded the printing of, a, of an English Bible known as the Great Bible, which we'll talk about. Uh, Miles Cloverdale is a person that, that 
worked with Tyndale. So Miles Cloverdale and, and John Thomas Matthew Rogers. Uh, Thomas Matthew is a pseudonym that actually um, Tyndale probably used. Uh, and, and they had remained loyal disciples the last six years of Tyndale's life. They carried the English Bible Project forward and even accelerated. So when Tyndale was killed, they carried on the work that he did. Um, Cloverdale finished translating the Old Testament in 1535. He printed the first complete Bible in the English language, making use of Luther's German text and the Latin of sources. And thus the first complete English Bible was printed on October 4th, 1535, and is known as the Coverdale Bible. John Rogers. So John Rogers went on to print the second complete English Bible in 1537. He printed it under the pseudonym of Thomas Matthew um, and is a considerable, uh, considerable part of this Bible is trans was the translation of Tyndale, whose writings had been condemned by English authorities. And it's a composite made out of uh, Tyndale's Pentateuch and New Testament and Cloverdale's Bible, Coverdale's Bible, and some of Rogers' own translation of the text. It remains known mostly as the Matthew Tyndale Bible, and it went through a nearly identical second printing in 1549. Here's the great Bible to mention. In 1539, Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, hired Miles Coverdale at the behest of King Henry VIII to publish the Great Bible. It became the first English Bible authorized for public use as it was distributed to every church, chained to the pulpit, right? Because of how valuable it was. It was chained to the pulpit. Um, and a reader was even provided so that the illiterate said, hear the word of God in plain language. That reader, by the way, is not anything electronic. That's a person who's there reading it. Because many people can't read at the time. I mean, they're, they're also illiterate in, in many cases. So it would seem that uh, William Tyndale's last wish had been granted just three years after his martyrdom. Now, Cramner's Bible, published by Coverdale, was known as the Great Bible due to its great size. It was a large pulpit folio Bible. The word folio is usually made, uh, used of the bigger Bibles. is over 14 inches tall. So this particular um, Bible is, uh, you, you could purchase uh, this. This is a 19, I mean, 1539 great Bible for $124,000, basically $125,000. Uh, it's appraised at $225,000, right? So as far as the great... No, I'm I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you understand value. Right now, we don't have ancient Bibles in our homes like this, but do you see the value? I mean, it, obviously, investors put value on this because they're historical. But the reason they're historical is because they were so instrumental in the Bible that we have today. Right. So it, the reason I mentioned prices is just to help you understand. There's there's real value in the Word of God, but there's more than that. There's spiritual value, right? You can buy reproductions at, at much lower cost. Yeah, they'll call facsimiles. But go to the same website, they'll show you. Um, so, it, and King Henry VIII allowed the English Bible, not because he had a change of heart about anything, about the Bible, but because he wanted to divorce his wife. And the Catholic Church would not allow him to divorce his wife. So he said, fine, I'm going to declare a new church, and he's going to be the head of the church. So that's where the Church of England originates, from King Henry VIII wanting to divorce his wife. So he did go and divorce her, and I think he had a couple of his previous wives um, eliminated. 
Um, but he paid for this translation of the Bible to go forward. Even though it wasn't on good motives, it's, it still went forward. Uh, King Henry was essentially the Pope at, at that time of the, of the English church. Right? But, but nonetheless, God, God used that. Now here's, a, here's the spine of the great Bible, uh, 1535. Right? It shows you uh, just the, the work. That's an original. All right. What happens after... After Henry VIII, right? Well, it goes the other way. Then you have Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary, right? And she wants to take England back to the Roman Catholic Church. So she starts persecuting all the Protestants. So destroying Bibles, martyring many, many people. Right? So the, what happens is those who are leaders were either martyred uh, le- leaders uh, in the kind of the English Reformation, they either were martyred or they fled England, right? Because Bloody Mary is known that because of how many people that she she killed. In uh, 1555, John Thomas Matthew Rogers. So he wrote he wrote under that Thomas Matthew because that wasn't really anybody; it was a pseudonym. But we know that in history for for John Rogers and Thomas Cramner. They were both burned at the stake. Um, and uh, the refugees fled from England to one of the few places of refuge, and that was Geneva, Geneva, Switzerland. So they found refuge in Geneva. In the 1550s, the church at Geneva, Switzerland, was very sympathetic to the reformers, uh, the reformer refugees from England, and it was a safe haven for them. Many of them met there. Uh, they're led by Miles Coverdale. Remember, he was one of the translators of the early Bible. And, and John Fox, publisher of Fox Book of Martyrs, if you've never read that, that, that is still uh, the only exhaustive reference work on the persecution and martyrdom of the early Christians and Protestants from the first century up to the mid-16th century. Uh, there with the protection of the great theologian John Calvin, you had John Calvin, John Knox, and, and uh, John Fox, along with Miles Coverdale, uh, who is an associate at Tyndale, that worked on translating the Bible into English. They had so many English refugees, they wanted to come up with an English Bible for all the English refugees who were there. So they came up with what is now known as the Geneva Bible. And there's a little picture of the Geneva Bible as, as printed there in the lower left-hand corner. Yes, of course. <laughs> the Geneva, the, the, new, the Geneva New Testament Bible was completed in 1557. And the complete Bible, I'm sorry, the New Testament in 1557 and then the complete Bible in 1560. And it was known as the Geneva Bible. And due to a passage in Genesis describing the clothing that God fashioned for Adam and Eve upon expulsion from the Garden of Eden as breeches, an antiquated form of breeches, uh, some people referred to the Geneva Bible as the breeches Bible. So uh, the Geneva Bible was the first Bible to add numbered verses to chapters. So up to this point, uh, you couldn't say like Matthew chapter one verse five, right? So um, and every chapter was also accompanied by extensive marginal notes and references uh, throughout. So this was the first study Bible, right? the first ever study Bible is the Geneva Bible. Uh, William Shakespeare quotes hundreds of times in his plays from the Geneva translation of the Bible. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's pretty good. Now, now you. I'll make a mention about some of the notes in, in just a minute. Um, in um, 
Let's see here. Yeah, so the Geneva Bible became the Bible of choice for over 100 years for English-speaking Christians. And between 1560 1644, at least 144 editions of this Bible were published. So examination of the 1611 King James Bible shows clearly that its translators were influenced much more by the Geneva Bible than by any other source. Right? The Geneva Bible itself retains over 90% of William Tyndale's original English translation. And the Geneva Bible remained more popular than the King James Version until decades after its original release in 1611. So the Geneva Bible holds the honor of being the first Bible taken to America and the Bible of the Puritans and the Pilgrims. And it is truly the Bible of the Protestant Reformation. So you can uh, purchase um, a 1616 Geneva folio. So it's not one of the originals, right? For about $9,000. So just, just nine. That's a lot, lot cheaper than some of the others. Right. Again, you, as you get newer, as, as more editions, remember how many editions? 144 editions. Now, I don't know how many thousands of copies that means, but in 144 editions, there's a lot more of them, and hence to find an original one of these is, is, is not, it's not as rare as, as like Tyndale's, some of the earlier ones. So here... Um, Going just talking a little bit more about the um, the Geneva Bible. I see I I um, kept I repeated it in that first paragraph, but one of the great um, I think I got this on another slide. I, I think I do. But one of the great great ironies of history is that Protestants of all denominations, kind of at this stage in history, like um, they embrace the King James version of the Bible. Um, even though the King James Version is not a Protestant Bible. Okay? So in Protestant, like if you go to a real fundamentalist church, they're going to cling to a 1611 Bible. But that was known as a Catholic Bible. It's an, because it's Angla, Anglican church is very close to the Catholic church. Right? It was not the Bible of the Reformation. Right? So it's kind of an ironic uh, turn of history that the King James Bible became that. Um, when the Geneva Bible was really the Bible that the pilgrims came over with and the Puritans used as well. Uh, most Protestants have never heard of, the, of, of a Bible in, the, in their own heritage. The Geneva Bible was produced, again, as I mentioned, John Calvin, John Knox, Miles Coverdale, John Fox, and other English, English refugees in the ever-neutral Geneva, Switzerland, fleeing the persecution of Roman Catholic uh, Queen Bloody Mary in England. Now, many would not tolerate the, the Protestant Bible, the Geneva Bible, because in its notes, remember I told you it was the first study Bible? In its notes, it identified the Pope as the Antichrist. And, and hence, why even, even years later, uh, the church, uh, that, that, that fact would lead to the development of the, of the King James Version later with the removal of the notes. So remember the King James Version has like 90% of the Geneva Bible, but they don't bring the notes forward for that reason. They found that the church found the notes very uh, offensive. The introductory notes to the 1611 King James Bible, you will not find those introductory notes. Go buy them. Go buy that Bible. You can read the introduction notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, mention, I'll mention the King James Version more in just a minute. So at the end of uh, Queen Mary's uh, bloody reign, the reformers could return to England 
and the Anglican Church, now under Queen Elizabeth I, reluctantly tolerated printing and distribution of Geneva version of Bibles in England. Of course, they hated the notes, but they tolerated it because it was so popular. Um, and basically, they, they came up with a, they wanted to come up with a different version that had, didn't have the notes. So they developed what is known as the Great Bible or the Bishop's Bible. Um, despite 19 editions being printed between 1568 and 1606, this Bible was referred to as the rough draft of the King James Version, never gained much of a foothold of popularity among the people. The Geneva may simply have been too much to compete with. Obviously, if your people feel like you're trying to withhold those notes, they, they probably very much appreciated those like you and I would. So you can purchase a 1608 Bishop's um, New Testament for about $3,000. Then you have the, the, the Doe Realms Bible. So the Catholics, not to be outmatched, thought, well, you know what? If, if there's going to be English, we, if there's going to be English translations, and they tried to stop it and, and didn't, they said, well, then we better come up with our own translation. So this, this, this is just the Catholic translation in English. But they translated from the Latin Vulgate. So there's many, many problems with this translation. Um, and in the bottom paragraph, you say in 1589, Dr. William Fluke of Cambridge published what's known as Fluke's Refutation, in which he printed in parallel columns the bishop's version alongside the realm's version, attempting to show the error and distortion of the Roman Catholics' corrupt compromise of an English version of the Bible. So kind of taking them to task there. And then you have King James. With the death of Queen Elizabeth I, Prince James the sixth of Scotland became King James I of England. And the, the Protestant clergy approached the new king in 1604 and announced their desire for a new translation to replace the bishop's Bible first printed in 1568. Um, uh, they, they knew that Geneva Bible had really won the hearts of the people, but they hated the notes. Those, uh, so they, were, they wanted, uh, they wanted the, the translation, but not the controversial marginal notes. And then... The leaders of the church desired a, a Bible for the people with scriptural references, so it would have some cross-references to it. And this was supposed to be the translation to end all translations. It was supposed to be the, the perfect one. So they, they took it into consideration the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and even the Realms New Testament. Um, this great revision of the Bishop's Bible had begun. So despite what you will hear, the King James Version of the Bible did not come down from heaven. It is not the received text, okay? So it, it denies all historical facts to say so. So it's a good translation, right? It's not an inspired translation. I'm not knocking. It is a good translation. So the King James Bible kind of took off from 1607 to 1609. The work was assembled. And in 1610, the work went to press. 1611, the first huge pulpit folios, uh, as are known today, were, were printed. Uh, starting one year after the huge 1611 pulpit sized, again, they were pulpit sized, they were chained to pulpits because of their value, even then. Um, and then after they printed those, and they got those in every church building in England, then they started printing smaller personal editions. Now, they still would be quite costly, so this would be, a wealthy man's gain probably to buy one, um, at least in the first stages. Right? So the Anglican Church's King James Bible took decades to overcome the more popular Protestant Church's Geneva Bible. You can get facsimiles of it, yep. 
Yep, you can. So now it's interesting. Here's here's a here's an interesting here's an interesting little factoid. When they first printed the 1611 King James Version Bible, they they had some typos in it, and one of the typos is in Ruth and in Ruth 3:15. It rendered um, it rendered a pronoun that should have been she and, and to he, talking about Ruth. And so these are known as by collectors today as the he Bibles instead of of she. So um, these are these are in existence now. This one because because again it's 1611. This is an original 1611, right? So you could purchase a 1611 he Bible for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, right? So if you have one in your garage, don't throw it away, okay? <laughs> So you can pay your mortgage off with that. Um, so this is kind of what I mentioned before. I knew I had it in here earlier. I've already mentioned it, but just the irony of Bible history is the King James Version is, is one that most Protestants would cling to if you're kind of the fundamentalist side, especially, say, 50 years ago. But the Geneva Bible is really the Bible that the Reformers brought, the Pilgrims brought, the Puritans had. So... Um, the King James Version, although it's a good version, it, it is an Anglican version, which is very close to, to Catholic. All right. Um, so for over 250 years until the appearance of the English Revised Standard Version of 1881 to 1885, the King James Version reigned without much of a, of a rival. Um, and so it's, it, it is a good translation. What you see here are the spines of the of a King James Bible, very old ones. I don't remember the dates. I didn't write that down, but you have the uh, Old Testament and New Testament. So often they, they were, sometimes they're printed and published together, sometimes separately. All right, so to, just to give you a little, little idea on how English ch changes over time. Okay, so this is 1611 English in our typeset. Remember, they, they used, um, one of the things, I, I, I think I had in my notes somewhere, but one of the important things of the Geneva Bible is they switched from the Gothic print to more of a Roman print that's much easier to read, right? So that's another reason that it was popular is because it changed fonts. Um, but this, this, is a, this is all set in modern font, but it gives you an idea, right, of English in 1611, right? Now, it still would sound the same, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Right? Notice the RV would correspond to the, the kind of antiquity U, right? So you notice just there's, there's changes there. So if you were to pick up, if you, ha if you bought a 1611 or a facsimile of a 1611, you, you would have to make this switch in your head, right? And you're going to, in some of them, they use, still, they use some Gothic print on the 1611. So you've got to read Gothic print. So just, just keep that in mind. Now, if you just travel back in time to the Rams Bible, remember the Rams was what, the... Catholic translation, okay? Here's how that looks. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that everyone who believeth in him perish not, but have everlasting, have life everlasting. Okay? So again, the meaning is the same. I'm just showing you how English changed in time. Go back, 1560, all right? This is the Geneva Bible. For God so loveth the world that he hath given his only begotten son, that none that believe in him should perish, but have everlasting life. Go back a little bit older. The Great Bible, 1539. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Beginning to look a little bit like a foreign language in places, isn't it? Right? Tyndale, 1534. Right? For God so loveth the world that he hath given his, his only Son, that none that believe in him should perish but have everlasting life. Right? That's a different spelling. So you notice uh, Tyndale's almost found, sounds more modern, although you have to make some, some swaps with uh, letters to get the same pronunciation. So uh, I've told people if they ever get a 1611, you're going to have to make this switch in your head, so it's not going to be easy to read for us who are in the modern, uh, read modern English. Here's Wycliffe, uh, 1380. Um, For God so loved the world that he, hath, he, he gave his son, his only begotten son, that every man that believeth in him not perish not, but have everlasting life. You see how difficult that is. Right? I know what John 3.16 says, and it's still difficult for me to read that. <laughs> so imagine you know, trying to read a passage you're not that familiar with. Right? That just shows you how our own English language has changed so much with, with time. So, one little known fact. Is it really a 1611 King James Version? One little known fact is that for the past 250 years, all King James Version Bibles published anywhere by any publisher are actually Blaney's 1769 revised Oxford edition of the 1611 King James Bible. Uh, the original 1611 preface is almost always deceivingly uh, included by modern publishing companies with no mention of the fact that really the 1769 version is to be found because that might hurt sales among those imagining that they are reading the original 1611 version. Uh, the only way to obtain a true, unaltered 1611 version is to either purchase an original pre-1769 printing of the King James Version Bible or a less costly facsimile reproduction of the original 1611. So you can buy, you can buy a, a facsimile edition of a 1611 for $139. So not too bad considering all the other prices that we've talked about. If you want an original, you're going to have to be willing to shell a lot more money for that. Right? So again, if you ever get in a discussion with a friend right, who's talking about, yeah, they're reading the 1611, right? you, you can mention this. And they're going to go to the preface of the Bible and it's going to say, yes, it's 1611. So how do you prove that? Well, what you do is you have to get, you have to find a 1611, which you can do that online. You find a 1611, a real 1611, King James Version of the Bible, and compare it to their own. And there are like 20,000 changes, like 20,000 small grammatical changes between the 1611 and the 1769 version. So just, just so you're aware of that. Okay. So points of application. We're just about wrap, wrapping up here. All right. So what do we do with all this? This, this is kind of like what, um, what Abner Chow calls allurement, right? Sermon, lecture, together, lerman, get it? So I think Abner Chow coined that, that, that phrase. But, but what we want to do here is just, just thank God. You know, we want to thank God for preservation of his word. So, so many years, we did not have God's word in our language, and God still preserved it through lives of all these men that we've talked about and many others. You know, we mentioned, you know, the big names. But think of all the people who funded you know, that took, protected and paid for Luther or protected Tyndale, 
um, protected Wycliffe and helped pay for his. I mean, just all the people that 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 risked their lives delivering, you know, the Bibles that were stashed and like in the grain, the bags of grain. The, the, you know, they they're just hundreds of people who gave their lives, and we don't even know their names, but we're all beneficiaries of them. So just thanking him for his preservation of his word, giving giving us his word in our language. There are, there are people today who don't have the Bible in a, in a language they understand still today. And they're smaller tribes, but, but nonetheless, they don't have it in. So it's something we should not take for granted. And we're just going to thank God for giving men like Tyndale gifting in languages. You know, Tyndale fluent in eight languages. And that, that really helped. Um, Gave him, he gave him courage and determination to defy the authorities, risk his own life, not just Tyndale, but many others. Um, and just to giving the martyrs a, a love and thirst for God's word. I remember one time that, that um, someone uh, gave John MacArthur, and I don't remember which Bible it is, but it, it was an actual original Bible with martyrs' bloodstains on the Bible. Right? So, I mean, that... that tells you people's love for the word of God. And I just mentioned that, not to gross you out, but just to say, we need to carry forward their vision. They, they died to, to hand the baton of the Bible to us. And let, let this encourage you to read the Bible. Right? And don't let busyness of life crowd out reading the Bible. If you don't read the Bible, it's like quenching the Holy Spirit. Right? Reading the Bible puts fuel onto your, your spiritual soul and, and fills you and nourishes you. Right? So many people, and I'm, not, I'm probably speaking to those that this isn't true of, but so many people, if you go to their home, their Bible's got dust all over it. Right? I'm not, not talking about the old one that you don't read anymore, and you've got a new one that you're still reading. Right? So it's, it's not wrong to have an old one that has dust on it. But I get the point I'm making is, Read it, value it. I mean, your Bible at home isn't worth $350,000. It's worth more than that. Because of the spiritual food that it feeds you. And the Bible you hold stands in a long lineage that ties all the way back to all these that we talked about tonight. And, and the next time, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll take, from, take it from the King James Version and kind of help you understand some of the, the significant English translations. There's been a, a ton of them recently, so we will not talk about all of them, but we'll talk about the major ones and then leading up to the Legacy Standard Bible and, and some of the strengths of the, of the Legacy Standard Bible. So that's kind of kind of where we're going. And the thing to think about is, if the, if the Word of God were ever outlawed again, would you die for it? Would you die for it? I like to think, yes, right? But I know it's easier to say that in times of peace than it is actually to do that. But, um, you know, just, just remember that as you, as you open up your Bible, whether it's in the mornings or the evenings or whatever, you know, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide and pierce the bone, the marrow. It's really just piercing. You guys, if you're saved, you have experienced that as you read the Word of God and the Holy Spirit helping you to understand the word comes alive. You're convicted, you're encouraged, you're strengthened all by a printed book. No, it is a printed book, but it's more than a printed book. It's the word of God. So what's that? It comes alive. Because the Holy Spirit authored that. 
the Holy Spirit preserved it, and the Holy Spirit is using that word today in our lives and in other people's lives as well. So preach the word as you talk to people. Um, you know, it's, it's not our words that, and our words are like, remember, Paul said they're foolishness, right? But we are not ashamed of the so-called foolish gospel because the power, it's the power of God um, to salvation of all who believe, right? All who believe, no matter what they've done, no matter what um, culture they come from, right? Anyone who calls the name of the Lord, who believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and died for their sins and rose again, anybody who calls upon him as Lord, as God, as Savior, is saved and transformed. And that's a glorious gospel. That's worth giving your life for. That's worth dying for. And the reformers and the martyrs and Christians going back thousands of years have proved that time and time and time again. Let's, uh, let me uh, close some prayer because I know we're over, way over time. I just see what time it is. Thank you for your patience. Um, let me pray. Lord, I just thank you for uh, giving uh, us this, just even this brief history and, and value of your word and, and just ask that you would um, help us to always value your word. Although we have multiple copies and copies of your word in abundance, Lord, let it not uh, tempt us to be lethargic or to take that for granted, but just to love your word and fuel, fuel that love in our lives and just help us to preach the word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.